This is Hemet Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast, and this is a special bonus episode. I'm going solo here because I have a special guest. In 2014, Pastor Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, after a series of simply awful behavior. It was so bad that his church was dropped from the Acts 29 church planting network he started due to, quote, ungodly and disqualifying behavior, unquote. Former colleagues also said weeks later that Driscoll lacked self-control, was guilty of verbally assaulting others, and created a culture of fear. Among other things, Driscoll was found to have trolled his own church website's forums, used church funds to game the system and turn his book about marriage into a bestseller, and committed plagiarism. Former church members were calling for his resignation— And then there were all the sexist and provocative comments from over the years. Now, the evangelical publication Christianity Today is launching an investigative podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is really about the rise and fall, and maybe rise again, of Driscoll. It's hosted by the magazine's director of podcasts, Mike Cosper, whose credentials in the evangelical world would take a long while to recount here. Needless to say, he's someone who would understand Driscoll and this particular environment better than most. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. I'm just going to start off because we're talking to a predominantly atheist audience here. uh, Maybe some of them are not familiar with Mark Driscoll. Why does he matter in the world of evangelical Christianity? Yeah, so Mark was the pastor of Mars Hill Church. They planted in 1996. And, you know, one of the things that made Mark unique is that early on in the life of the church, he um, his sermons were accessible online. And that sounds like a small thing now, but, you know, if it's 2000, 2001, um, you're relatively internet savvy and you're a Christian, you're looking for content online. Um, and he's, you know, he's making his available early on. And I was one of those guys, uh, who found him. So, so a lot of people talk about how he's like the first internet famous pastor, which I think is true. And are these sermon, I mean, are these sermons just typical sermons that happen to be online or is he doing something that makes them so interesting to people who find him? Yeah, no, they were definitely (laughs) unique because, you know, at, at the time, you know, the, the, the trends in, in preaching at the time definitely tended towards short, friendly, practical kinds of sermons. Mark would preach for an hour or more. Um, he he had a ton of sort of masculine bravado. He talked about sex. He talked about drinking beer. Um, and so it was just a totally, it was a tone shift. And so if you were young and energetic and uh, looking for permission for kind of a different type of Christianity, Mark was definitely your guy. And so why, one of the questions I have, I know people are familiar with some of the bad stuff he's done, but before we get into a lot of that, can you kind of explain what Acts 29 is and what the significance of Mars Hill is? Because it's not just about Mark Driscoll, it's about this community and and the launching pad that he was kind of involved with. Yeah, I mean, they were pioneers in a lot of different ways, you know, when they launched, there's this thing called the emergent church happening, which is like a, uh, sort of 
progressive reform happening inside the church where people are looking for sort of recontextualizing uh, for Gen Xers that are coming of age. So he he sort of emerges from that and is like the counter influence of that, which is basically like, hey, we can do all this cool stuff, but still preach the Bible, believe the Bible, all of that. Um, I think another reason he had a massive influence was because he, in some ways, was like the first pastor with a personal brand. You see a lot of that now. These kind of guys, they have a look, they invest in their style, their fashion or whatever. Um, that wasn't common then. Um, what but then was they were, his personal brand that uh, stood out? You know, you go back and look, and he 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 would wear these really thick leather wrist cuffs, um, or or watches with like a wrist cuff band. He would he wore a choker. He had like a you know he had this kind of stocky build like a fighter, um, and yeah, he just wore kind of punk rock looking stuff. Um, but then you know they had enormous success, and people sort of drew them in and platformed them and, and he got resources for funding and, and some partnerships that enabled them to start planting churches. That's how Acts 29 came about. And all these guys who wanted to be Mark Driscoll um, uh, and wanted to plant churches like this uh, became part of Acts 29 and it became just a massive movement. Was Driscoll ever overtly political in that time? Because I feel like if I think about the 2000s when all of this is kind of growing and forming and I'm thinking about George W. Bush and the religious right, Driscoll's name is not one that pops up in my memory. Yeah, he, he wasn't. Um, and it's interesting because now he's in Phoenix, Arizona and he is pretty, you know, vocally political, but at the time in Seattle, he wasn't. And I think that was, something he was intuiting um, about his audience, that if he got political, if he pushed kind of right-wing stuff, uh, that could potentially blow back against him. For you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, for Christianity Today, this is the first foray into podcasting. There are any number of controversies to cover with a lot of nuance. There's any number of pastors who might be interesting to cover. Why this guy? Why this story? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them is personal. This is a story I was close to. I, I helped plant a church in 2000, was on staff till 2015. We were part of Acts 29 for about six years um, in the midst of that. And I know a lot of these people. Uh, I, I knew Mark a little bit. We met a few times. I mean, I, he may not even remember me. But a lot of these Mars Hill staff guys were friends of mine. So I saw it up close, and I saw it happening over and over and over again at other churches. Um including my own. So you saw what you know, happening? Pastors sort of rising to prominence, having a lot of success. And then, you know, months later, it sort of comes out, there's a, a toxic culture of leadership. Um, and these guys get removed. And there's, there's a, quite a few Acts 29 churches where this took place. Um, and, you know, and more broadly. Um, and so the question becomes like, why does this happen? Both in terms of why do guys like this get platformed? Um, why does the church not learn from its mistakes? What attracts Christians to people like this? One thing I'm curious about, and I was curious about it when Mars, uh, when Mark Driscoll was basically removed from the church, uh, from Mars Hill, but it didn't take that long for him to start up this new church in Arizona. He seems to be kind of right back to where he used to be. What is it? I mean, if there was such a toxic culture at Mars Hill that even the people at Mars Hill are like, we can't deal with this guy and this culture anymore. 
And yet he just pops up in a new place, starts right back again from scratch, does kind of, it sounds like he's doing a lot of the same stuff. A question that I've been trying to figure out is, I mean, it's not like you can't Google this guy. He's not (laughs) new. Why are so many people still attracted to him? And they haven't, I don't know, are they not listening to the people at Mars Hill who said this guy is toxic, that he's a problem? Are they oblivious to it or do they not care? Or what's the deal? Why is he, him personally, still popular in just another location? Yeah, I, I think there's two reasons for it. One is he's a really, really compelling and charismatic guy. And so when he tells his version of the story, um, which we explore on the podcast, people are compelled by that. I think the other thing, the other factor is if they do Google him and they do, you know, hear these stories and all of that, like the whole idea that there are no second acts in American life, I think that's just complete nonsense. We love a second act. We love the idea of somebody sort of making it back from the brink and being, being restored and believing, you know, oh, oh, this time he's changed. You know, you see that in toxic relationships of all kinds. Like, Mm -hmm. I think, I think he's going to change this time around. Um, and that was the story inside, inside Mars Hill. I, there, somebody said to me the other day, you know, it felt like we were always one good conversation away from being able to turn the corner and get healthy. Does, for it to be a second act, though, Driscoll would probably have to acknowledge, okay, I screwed up, but I'm a changed man now. But it doesn't sound like he's come to terms with what he did or accepted any blame or responsibility. It sounds like he's just picking up and right where he left off at a new location. So like, is it a second act for him or is he just like, all right, I'm just moving to a new place and doing the same shtick. Yeah. I, I, it's a little bit of both. I mean, he did, he did an interview in 2015 where he did a little bit of sort of a mea culpa in the conversation. Um, but then he kind of turned this corner where he basically chalked everything up to like a leadership conflict inside the church. And he decided it was time to move on and, and all of that. Um, so I think you can, you know, I think if you want to believe in Mark, which if you, you know, if you watch the sermons, you resonate with what he has to say, you're excited about what he wants to do. If you want to believe him, you can find stories and motivations to, to, to sign up for it. Let's talk about the podcast a bit. Actually, before I get to that, I, I realized Mark Driscoll came out with a book a couple of years ago, and this is how he described his move to Arizona, which as a reporter, as as a commentator on my end, um, I was aware that there were a lot of these toxic culture problems within the church. And that's part of, I mean, that's the reason he was kicked out of there. This is how he described it in uh, a book he published in, I think, 2018. My wife, Grace, and I have five kids, three boys and two girls. We moved to Arizona for a hard reset of life and ministry after years of feeling like a crash test dummy in a car with no airbags. After about two decades in ministry, I took some time off to heal up before entering the next season of God's will for our life. Like, it glosses over a gazillion things right there. Uh, mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like he's changed in any meaningful way from the mm-hmm. outside here. Um, let me ask you about the podcast itself. You wanted to talk to a lot of these people. You knew some of these people. Uh, what did you learn that you had no idea about from when you were within that culture, within that specific community? Yeah, I think I was, um, I think what I found so compelling 
and and was just continually drawn into in this story is the heartbreak of the story. When you see it from a distance, because of the way news gets told, because of the way things happen on social media and, and all of that, it looks like this very black and white story uh, where you see him being this kind of rowdy, angry guy on stage. And then you hear stories about a, an unhealthy culture inside the church. And it's like, well, that all makes sense. But when you actually sit down and, and listen to the people who were there, they tell you these incredible stories of Mark being hospitable, Mark being generous, you know, life change, life transformation, the investment he made in the relationships in these people. Um, I mean, I remember there's one story in particular that I think about all the time, you know, Mark being at this conference in New York city and, you know, he's, he's young and, and he's, he's a young church planner. So he's broke. He's got this chance to go have a night on the town in New York city. And he goes to another pastor's room and he says, you know, this pastor and his wife were there and they had their kids cause they couldn't get anybody to watch their kids. And he says, Hey, I, you know, you guys should go out for a date night. You know, me and he had another pastor who was with him. He goes, we'll just, we'll order a movie. We'll order a pizza. We'll keep an eye on your kids. You guys go enjoy the city for the night. Um, and you know, he, everyone's like to a T, everybody's like, man, he loved kids. He loved being around kids. And he, he had this generous spirit where like that kind of stuff happens all the time. So I think those kinds of moments give you insight into why people felt so invested in the church. Like that's a side of Mark. That's an important side of Mark. And I, I think it's just way too dismissive and easy for people to say, oh, that was just manipulation or whatever. Cause there were a lot of times he did stuff like that with nothing to gain from somebody. And now those stories that you say are, are relatively abundant among people who were part of that church. What do they think about? I mean, I could list off a number of the things he did that added to that toxic culture. What are those fans of his who could cite those stories saying about, are those all like attacks from other people? Are there, are they credible, but we can ignore them because he does good stuff too. <sighs> Yeah, that's a, man, that's a great question. I mean, the defenses of Mark are, are interesting um, because, you know, there's one, there's one guy in particular, um, and we'll get into this later in the series, but what I can say is this is somebody who was very much sort of pushed out of the church and his reputation, you know, fairly marred by Mark. Um, and this guy just packed up and moved on. And he looks at all of these stories. He looks at people saying we were wounded, we experienced abuse, et cetera. And he's like, ah, toughen up, you know, like, yeah, Mark can be, Mark can be a jerk, whatever. Lots of people can be jerks, pick up with your life and move on. Uh, so I think there is this like, almost like, you know, you know, the problem isn't that Mark's a jerk, like sure he's a jerk, but you're a snowflake, get over it and move on with your life. Did you try to interview him for the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. I've emailed him, um, and reached out to him, you know, a variety of ways, uh, a number of times and, no response. Uh, doesn't surprise me. I, I mean, his approach to a lot of this stuff post Mars Hill has been just basically not to engage, um, which, you know, I, has, I think, been effective for him in, in Phoenix. So I'd love to talk to him, though. I mean, I'd, I'd love to ask him these questions. I'd love to hear his answer to these questions. What's, what's kind of the biggest one you would love to ask him? Um. I, I think I'd want to start, you know, we get into this on the first episode. I'd want to start with what made him believe there was a, you know, he says there was a trap set for him. I'd, I'd love to hear him say what made him believe there was a trap set because universally from the guys who were there at the end, none of them wanted him out. They wanted him healthy. They wanted him changed. 
Um, they wanted Mars Hill to continue, though, and they believed he was central to that. I don't know if this is a fair question to ask you, but like, is Christianity better off? I, I know you're a believer, so I'm asking you this in that vein. Is Christianity better off having people like Mark Driscoll at the helm minus the toxic personality if he was quote unquote healthy and cleaned up, but he did exhibit the same kind of aggressive masculine type of stuff. Um, I mean, is that good for the faith or is that itself the toxic culture that needs to be wiped out or, or challenged within the church? Yeah. I mean, church history is littered with complicated people to put it delicately, right? Like, Martin Luther was notoriously a sort of violently tempered, angry guy who contributed, you know, to the, he, like the founder of the Reformation. Um, and there, there are countless examples. And you know, I was a worship pastor for a long time. I spent a lot of time studying, you know, the writers of great hymns. Um, and some of those people led reckless and sad lives. And if you knew how their lives ended, you wouldn't want to sing their songs in churches. So there's this weird dynamic. I mean, Christianity is about a, a God who saves sinners. And it's also about a God who uses sinners to accomplish his purposes. Um, so it's littered with people who were flawed vessels who shared the gospel. And that's, that's what makes the Mars Hill story complex is people experienced real life change um, through a guy who had, had issues and, and when it was over, left those things unresolved. One question in terms of how you make this podcast, how many episodes did you end up doing for it? There'll be 12 episodes and um, there's probably going to be some bonus episodes along the way where we visit some side stories and issues. I'm wondering because I know Driscoll's been in the news uh, recently as we're recording this where he got mad at someone at his church because that guy's son dated his daughter and there was drama involved. How do you incorporate those recent stories into what I imagine is a, is a podcast series you've been working on for a really long time? How does that fit into this narrative? Yeah. You know, the, the podcast is really, well, I'll say it this way. The podcast right now is really focused on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We want to tell that story and understand how that church evolved over time and, and why it ended the way it ended. Um, so the, the issues that are happening now, the stories that are coming now out of Trinity are not necessarily like uh, a big part of what we're doing in this story. Um, in part because the whole way that church came about and the whole way Mark has, um, you know, his, his platform and what he's teaching and all, it's, it's dramatically different. Um, that said, we're following that story, and I'm sure as we um, as we move along, we're going to be incorporating some of it. Within Christianity Today, because the publication itself ha has a spectrum of evangelicals on it, was there any pushback internally on any aspect of this series because it covers such a controversial guy or maybe opinions that people on staff may share? Um, like, what sort of what was the reaction internally to, to pursuing this program? You know, we're the, so much of the mission of, of Christianity today is about how do we serve the church? Um, you know, there's this vision of beautiful orthodoxy uh, that governs kind of what we do. And one of the, one of the early conversations I had with uh, our executive producer, Eric Petrick and, and some other leaders is that we want to tell this story in a way that, 
can inspire the church to be better and more beautiful as a result. Um, you know, CT has told a lot of hard stories about pastoral failures, about scandals, about cover-ups. People ask all the time, like, why would you do this? This makes the church look bad. Um, and we do it because uh, we there's a need to expose the darkness. Like, we should be the most critical of our own house, clean up our own messes. Uh, and because it hurts the church's witness. And if we just ignore those stories or deny them, you know, people notice, you know, people notice what you're not saying. What are some of the lessons you think other churches should take away from Mars Hill? Yeah, I think, you know, accountability is critical. Um, so if, if we're looking at raising up certain kinds of leaders, if we're, if we're looking at people and saying, can this person be a leader? Can this person be a pastor? One of the many questions you should ask, but one of the central questions you should ask is, um, is this person willing to submit to someone else's authority? Meaning if two or three people or if one or two people show up in his life and say, hey, we, we see X, Y, Z and it's a problem, are they willing to believe them and hum- humble enough to say, okay, I need to, I need to address this. I need to do some things differently. Um, I think that's a critical, critical thing. I think there are broader questions we should be asking about questions about celebrity and um, kind of the whole platform thing um, and, and youth, you know, raising up young leaders and, and elevating them to very, very high levels of leadership very, very, very quickly. As in that is something that happened to Driscoll. He was young and elevated and maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, didn't have that life experience. You might need to be more humble. Yeah. I mean, he was in his, you know, he was in his twenties and thirties um, when, when the church is being planted and, and uh, when they're, they're starting to kind of rise to prominence. Um, so yeah, I think there's, I think, you know, there were older men around him who saw his gifts. Uh, you know, he's an incredible communicator and he's very compelling. They saw his gifts. They saw the alignment, you know, the theological alignment and the vision for the church. Um, and so they, they elevated him. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple people on the podcast who contributed to that, who have shown up for the podcast to talk about why, why that was and what they learned. And now talking about the need for that oversight and the humbling, correct me if I'm wrong, at Mark Driscoll's new church, Trinity, there is no oversight on him. Is that correct? Like there's no board of elders he's answering to or anything like that. Yeah, as I understand it, there's a there's a small external board um, that evolves. Uh, I believe I haven't looked at it recently, but I believe it's like three outside leaders who have some oversight uh, for the church. But no, there's no elders at the church. So is it? I mean, this is the concern from an outsider's perspective. He could easily slip back right into that toxic culture he left because. I mean, now it's even less oversight than it was at Mars Hill, where they kind of let him run rampant. And now he's just doing all the same stuff with nobody checking him. Yeah, I think I think the temptation is, you know, if, if you're telling a story, I'll put it this way, sort of generally, if you're telling a story that uh, your ministry fell apart because leaders around you had the authority to try to take it away from you, um, it's going to be very tempting in your next outing to say, well, I just need to make sure there's a structure where there's nobody who can take (laughs) away from me in the future. And you said you spoke to some of those leaders who helped him rise to the prominence he had. Um, 
did they say they kind of regret their role in that when they spoke to you? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's definite, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of up and down regret, but yes, for some of those outside folks who, you know, they saw, again, they, they saw the, the talent. I mean, one person referred to it as rocket fuel. Like he walks in the room and you just sense like, Oh, this guy's going places. I want to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, the problem with rocket fuel is it explodes. (laughs) And I mean, what would they, I don't know if they said this to you, but what would they have done differently if they could go back? Yeah. Yeah. The sense was, I mean, I think this universal sense, um, from people was they would have paid more attention to the warning signs. Um, you know, the things that, the things that would happen in terms of kind of side comments or small conflicts that you would say, ah, that, that rubs me the wrong way. Um, but I'll, you know, but I'll overlook it. Uh, you, you make the calculation in your head, like, oh, it's, it's worth the fallout. It's worth the collateral damage potentially because I see this kingdom impact. I see people getting saved. I see a movement that I want to be a part of. I I think that calculation is a significant factor in why people said nothing. Do you think, I mean, do you think it's important for Christians, the the type of people, maybe like yourself who were attracted to that uh, when they were younger, who are attracted to it right now? I mean, I don't think it's that hard to see parallels between the sort of people who, uh, look up to someone like Mark Driscoll because he has the the gifts you're speaking of, but also comes with a lot of baggage that I would argue overrides any of that good stuff. And also see the sort of uh, white evangelicals who supported Donald Trump with all of his flaws. I mean, there is something to be said about the people who are attracted to these types of hyper-masculine, no one can really challenge me, sort of people. I mean, how do you get those people? How do you shake them out of their system and say, you got to see this for what it is. And this has nothing to do with who's right and who's wrong, but it's, there's something damaging here and you're basically falling for it. And Mm -hmm. I'm not making that argument as an atheist, like to a preacher. I'm saying Mark Driscoll is not just a preacher. He's a guy who has all these really, I think we would agree on harmful beliefs as well. But how do you kind of get the people who follow him, who like him, to to see that? Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe that's part of what the podcast is as well. But I mean, this is something I know you've confronted at Christianity Today as well, because you've seen this in a variety of people. But like, what do you say to those people? Because you were one of them. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, man, I, I remember years ago, uh, a pastor named Jared Wilson made this comment. He said, what you win them with is what you win them to. Um, so if, if people are drawn into a church community because they love kind of charisma and celebrity and power and, and all of that, um, that's ultimately what you've won them over to. I think the, the issue for the church moving forward, and this has to do with politics. And I mean, there's denominational conflicts right now that are kind of all over the news, um, is like, what do we want to do with power? Um, the, the vision of power in the life of Jesus and in the life of New Testament is one of laying it down and sacrificing and being willing to lose, right? Like we're not willing to lose a, an argument on Fox News or a, a court case without just just absolutely losing our minds over it. Jesus says, lay down your life, um, lay down your rights. And so I think, I, I think the, attract, the attraction of power, I think is a central issue for the church, for these stories, 
and for evangelicalism as a whole. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. The podcast is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It is now available wherever you get your podcasts. And good luck with the series. I look forward to hearing the rest of it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk. So thanks.